Hello listeners and welcome to what is now the fourth season of Pebble in the Pond podcast. We appreciate your support throughout the first three seasons uh, as we get our listenership up towards that 16,000 mark. Uh, thank you everybody, we appreciate it and um, yeah, and what a privilege it is to bring you uh, these stories from amazing people. We are here and we are aiming to create a ripple for change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and, and accomplished people in the mental health space. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain content, themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need any assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello podcast listeners and thanks for tuning in to a new season of our podcast 2022. Looking forward to a big year and plenty of podcasts to share with you this year uh, from interviews at our conferences throughout the year. Well on Friday the 9th of August 2019 the Council of Australian Governments endorsed the fourth action plan of the National Plan to Reduce Violence Against Women and Their Children 2010 to 2022 agreeing on five national priorities to reduce family, domestic and sexual violence. One woman committed to seeing out this plan is this week's podcast guest, Jackie Watt. Since 2015, Jackie has led No to Violence through transformational change, growing and building further credibility as Australia's leading best practice organisation in men's family violence interventions. This is Jackie's third CEO role, with previous peak roles spent advocating for community housing, She had worked at senior levels in various fields, including alcohol and drugs, mental health, disability, social housing, and social enterprise. Jackie holds an honours degree in social policy from the University of Edinburgh and a master's in management and social responsibility from Bristol University. She's also a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Tune in as Jackie joins me this week to discuss outcomes from the National Plan to Reduce Violence Against Women and Their Children and What's to Come. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in to another podcast, Pebble in the Pond. Today gives me great pleasure to introduce to you CEO of No to Violence, Jackie Watt. Jackie, welcome. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for joining us and we're really looking forward to trying to touch the surface on all the experience and the stuff that you've been up to during the course of your professional career. But do you mind just enlightening the listeners? Tell us a little bit about how you first got into this space because you've been in many facets of it, all related, but tell us how you first got the interest into it. Okay, well, before I begin, I always do begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on where I am coming today. I am on um, Wurundjeri Woiwurrung land, outside what is now known, obviously, as Melbourne, and I wish to acknowledge that that deep connection, which has existed for over 60,000 years, and acknowledge that note of violence, we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, and this was, and always will be, First Nations land, so that feels quite important in any conversation and also in a conversation about family violence and where it comes from. So, that, that does. Uh, and I, if I can jump in, I did read your Reconciliation Action Plan as well, which you guys put out last year. 
as well, which was really fascinating, and, and congratulations on doing that. No, thank you. We, we worked hard on that. It's something that actually has a deep meaning to us is to try and do this work respectfully and properly, and it feels that that is an important part of how we approach the role of also working with men who use family violence. So the question of respect is actually right at the heart of everything that we do. So how I got into this, Sam, there are days when I wonder, and, you know, this organisation has been in existence for about 30 years now. I joined approximately seven years ago. So just at the point in time when in Victoria, we had had a government elected on the promise of a Royal Commission into family violence. And we also had the previous year, the horrific incidents that led to Luke Batty's murder and his mum, Rosie Batty, of course, becoming our Australian of the year. So the topic was very front and centre or becoming front and centre in Australian minds. And it's a policy area I've always been interested in. I have some, like most people in Australia, have some direct experience and certainly know about how the impacts of men's use of violence has impacted on my friends and family and closest ones over the piece. So something I felt quite strongly about. And I saw the opportunity to help shape an organisation that really was going to become quite pivotal because I thought, well, I could join a women's organisation and that's really important and they're doing fabulous work and we must always support them. And if we don't start talking about the cause of the violence and get to the root cause of what's going on, we might never shift the dial enough in our lifetimes. What a great choice you made at the time. And I'll be keen to get your your feedback on how the last seven years, how you found the role and, and the challenges that have arisen. But prior to that, Jackie, you also had experience in alcohol and drugs, uh, mental health, disability. Tell us a bit about that as well. I mean, how did you, did you always have a passion for getting involved in this sort of work? Well, I guess my parents, they were both in the Second World War. So they were of a generation that grew up in relative poverty and probably wouldn't have met if it hadn't been for the Second World War. So housing was also something very close. I've spent a lot of time in my professional life in housing, very close to my mum's heart. And alcohol and drugs was a was a natural place to go in the 80s. So again, in in 1980s in Britain, we had a, a real issue with heroin. I think you believe you did in Australia as well. And our cities, we had huge unemployment. We had again a lot of poverty. Yeah. Drugs were coming in. It was it was killing people. So for me, that made a lot of sense going into that field. I've kind of always followed the work, Sam. I've been quite opportunistic in my career, but I did also have a background and an understanding of alcoholism at home from early childhood. So going into alcohol and drugs work, I sometimes say to people, it's the best job I ever had because I feel I learned such a lot about both myself and other people. And we were there again on the front line trying to support families impacted by all drugs, but at that stage, particularly heroin, which was doing the rounds in South Wales, the old South Wales. And yeah, that, I did two and a half years of learning to be a counsellor, which of course involves being able to reflect on yourself and also being able to listen to people. So there's a lot of learning in that role. What a great well, foundation though, to, I mean, to get into the space you're in now and you find that diversity and background and, and that in-depth and the breadth of the different sectors that you're a part of there helped give you that yeah. basis to, to spring from. Yeah. Hey, look, I think the thing is I've always enjoyed working with clients. It's when you start to climb the management ladders in organisations and you start to go up up to where the leadership in Capital L and the top things, the top management things are going on. That's when it gets a lot more difficult. Working with human beings is not that hard if you've got an open heart and you're reasonably well trained and you've got a reasonably supportive organisation. It's actually shifting things at the higher levels, which I think both appealed to me, but also is where I've probably encountered the greatest challenges. 
Yeah, well, let's go, you know, 2015, like you mentioned, it was a pivotal time in the sector. What were some of the early challenges that you had as a CEO of No Violence coming into the organisation? Gosh, cast my mind back. Well, I think I couldn't find the building on the first day, so that was a bit of a challenge. <laughs> couldn't find my way at the front door. Uh, maybe that's a metaphor. Look, I think the organisation had been in existence, as I say, for 20-odd years by then, but had done absolutely an amazing amount of work with very little resources, but had always kind of been under the radar a little bit. And so I, I was conscious that coming into a post-Royal Commission world in Victoria, particularly with there's going to be resources. Plus, we also had a contract in New South Wales mm-hmm. in 2013, which was to put for incoming calls for mine. And people didn't seem to know about that. So there was a lot of challenges just finding my foot in about what is what has actually gone on in the organisation, where's our content knowledge, where's our you know unique a unique contribution. And in Victoria, there was a willingness to talk about main services. A lot of relationships had been formed before my time with the women's sector. There was a lot of respect, some fundamental understandings that we had to get resources for the mines work or we weren't going to tackle the problem. And we had gone past that stage of worrying about if we go for money, we will be competing with women's services. It's like, no, we actually both need resources. Let's work together on this. So that foundation existed in Victoria, but it didn't really exist anywhere else. And there was still in other parts of the country, this nervousness around, you know, if you make the argument that we've got to find main services, then that will eat into the, the size of the pie that's available for women's services. And I'm like, well, it's not a zero sum game, you know, we've got to yeah. make the pie bigger. Yeah. And we've got to work together and make the pie bigger. So that was my kind of approach to that. So that, yeah. Because you're right, traditionally, I mean, and still is, I guess, under-resourced, the sector and scrounging around, especially non-government run, even government funded. I mean, there's still, there's only so much resources to go around. So like you said, rather than feel like you're taking off other organizations or other other really good willing associations or peak bodies, it's it's a matter of, like you said, just trying to drum up more support to get the more resources that are required. It's really interesting. And speaking of that, how has No to Violence, how has it grown over the last seven years since you've been involved? Well, it's grown exponentially. I think that's a fine English word. And in all states and territories, and we are now funded by the federal government for at least another year to run the Mines Referral Service as the national front door specialist service for menus and violence. So, uh, so we've grown hugely. We The budget when I arrived in 2015 was just under $2 million. And we've just signed off our annual general meeting last year, our, our accounts to up to the end of 2021, and we're looking at 12 million. So we've grown sixfold. Wow. And the three things that we do have all grown, so I should say. So it's not just the services, the front door, the please call us. And actually, by the way, if you do call us, we can give you something else as well. We can give you access to a counselling service. In Victoria, we can give you access to a housing service. And there's training available there's a workforce development team now, which has grown again uh, significantly to really build quality into what our workforce offerings are. But again, it's it's now performing a bit of a stretch between practitioners who need detailed specialist knowledge to work safely with mine and the follow-up therein required for their own learning. Mm-hmm. But also the, how do you even begin a conversation? If you know one of your mates is not behaving well with his partner or your sister or cousin or friend, is clearly in a relationship that might be exhibiting signs of coercive control. How do you even begin that conversation? So we kind of do everything from the full range of, you know, early intervention through to practice. And then, of course, the third thing we do is the peak advocacy policy work around the standards of practice to do the work, haranguing governments 
to say, here's what you should be funding and here's why, and building that evidence base that says, if you intervene early with men who are using violence, they can change and we can change the trajectory of this issue. And you've certainly had some success in that aspect of, you know, your advocacy and especially with the recent appointment as well with the different groups that you, you're now on and, and being recognised as a peak body and, and being involved in that, that men's behavioural change programs are effective and are a really important part of the, the solution. But what's exciting is the fact that you guys, I mean, ending gender-based violence has to be seen as a core business for all. I read that in your annual review that you did. And, and what really hits to me is more the holistic approach that you think that it's not just it's not just the mental health sector, not the domestic violence sectors that needs to help try and come up with a solution and, and reduce domestic violence and the homicides that we have too many of each year, but rather a whole community approach. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and what that means? Yeah, no, for sure. And look, I think not violence was a bit ahead of the game when they first set up in the 90s because they were actually called the Family Violence Prevention Association. At that point, obviously, just Victoria. And some of the workers in the violence used to go out to workplaces and talk to blokes in blokey workplaces. And they brought their toolkit with them, their metaphorical toolkit, which was all about, you know, what do you do when you hear this stuff? And why should you intervene? And what, and why? how does that connect with, as you've named, Sam, actual homicides of women and, and children and horrific stories? Because getting people to make that link is actually quite important. And now we've got a lot more resources nationally. We have Our Watch, we have Respect Victoria in Victoria, we have a whole heap of organisations like yourselves, the ANZ MHA, every year running this conference and every year coming up with new stuff, newer ideas, more evidence, more questions also about how do we do this? Well, I guess the bottom line is the cost of family violence to this to Australian society is so enormous that anything we can do to stop it and prevent it. So it's everything from respectful relationships work in schools with young people, not just young men, young Mm -hmm. men, young women. Uh, That has to be in place, but it's not enough, as you know. I mean, I don't know about you, but I know when I was a teenager and we got the the talk about relationships, everybody was sort of tittering into their desks and stuff. I think it's much better now, I'd like to believe. But that whole thing has to be built on and built on and built on. We need to support new parents. When a couple become a parent, that's one of the most challenging times for, for both parents. And we know it's a time when women are particularly vulnerable if there's already coercive control going on. Um, so that's your maternal child health or your, your parental child health. We know that in terms of mental health symptoms, like sometimes people who've grown up in a family violence context might exhibit mental health symptoms because that's them responding to the trauma from their childhood. So it's it's kind of everywhere and it's sort of ongoing. And that's why we've got to think about how do we stop it before it starts how do we notice it as soon as it starts you know even if we if we just go to the justice system responses by the time somebody's got the police involved it's happened at least six or seven times and 55 percent of people don't report to police early in the piece so so we can do work with people who are going through the justice system there's no doubt we can probably be doing a bit more and there is a national program coming up called cease that we're on the advisory group of and i look forward to contributing but we need to get in before then. We need people to notice all the people around every family. We want everybody talking about this at the barbecues. We want everybody talking about this at the beach. We want people to notice when someone's having a tough time in a relationship and saying, look, you can do something else. There is another alternative here. And fundamentally, at Not of Violence, we believe that men can change. So we always say it's not, it's not a place, it's not an organisation for people who don't believe that. 
Because if they don't believe men can change things, they can't be a part of what we're trying to achieve. But we also know, Sam, and it's really important to say that, that everything we do is about the safety of uh, victim survivors and children. Because at times you have to, you've got to get people out of bad situations because of what you were saying earlier. With the the role that organisations play, are you seeing more of a role with the workplace and and them sort of trying to recognise and be a part of this solution as well and the role that they play in, in this? I mean, tell us about how you've seen that progress over the last couple of years. Yeah, this is a really interesting space. And I think, you know, one of our fundamental messages is that we have to shift the burden. So the burden of experiencing family and intimate partner violence is often felt by and experienced by by women, the the emphasis in employ in employ places of employment has been around creating some safety for women to disclose, offering family violence leave. That thing, those things are all good, but then more and more employers are coming to us, and that could be in the health system, could be mental health, it could be corporates saying, "Hang on, but if there's all this perpetration going on, there's an awful lot of perpetrators out there. We must have some in our workplace." And we're able to say, oh, yeah, you'll definitely have people in your workplace who are perpetrating family violence, but they're very unlikely to disclose that to you unless there's some kind of impact on their employment and or you're willing to be part of supporting them to do mm-hmm. something different. So we we actually say very clearly men should be able to access family violence leave, but the onus is on em- employers to do their utmost to make sure that the, he's not using that time to further abuse or stalk or victimise, and that he's actually doing it as a way of having safe access with the kids if there's kids involved, doing something about what's given rise to this situation. So we are very keen to talk to any and all employers about what we can offer into that space, because we can also offer really bespoke, tailored bystander training for employees. So one of the studies that they did in New South Wales under Insight Exchange found out that women will not disclose to HR people necessarily. They won't mm-hmm. disclose to the HR team. They're more likely to disclose to a friend or partially disclose to a friend. And that conversation can be really important. People don't have to rush in. They shouldn't rush in. They shouldn't say, hey, you need to get out of there and here's the phone number. They, they need to be there to listen to the next bit of the conversation because there's every chance she will be testing out whether it's safe to tell this person. And there's every chance that she's in great danger by the time she's done that. So, And in the same way with mine, what we say is, let's think, let's really think this through. You know, it depends whether it's a mining company or a bank or a school. There'll be different ways of approaching perpetrators in the workplace. There mm. is some really progressive things happening out there in the corporate space, and some are particularly doing better than a lot of others. But it's it's really interesting to see, and I think over the coming years we're going to see a lot more help, hopefully, with that. But but definitely, you guys provide some bespoke training to corporates to help them train up and identify. Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. And we're really pleased to be part of the Champions of Change document that came out just a couple of weeks ago. We did a bit of a fairly extensive bit of work with them. Yeah. We've worked with Commonwealth Bank. We're in conversation with Rio Tinto at the moment about what, because they've done some good stuff, but they know they're not getting to the front line, the front line mine. Yeah. Uh, and they've got, they know they've got a big piece of work to do. So I hope they don't mind me naming them. So no. no, we're very open to that. We think we can offer some help with how they think about it first. Yeah, It's not just about us selling our wares and our products. It's about saying, what is your real challenge and what might be a range of different ways of approaching that before um, settling on a, on a product. Well, tell us about now the advocacy that you guys have been doing and uh, congratulations on being part of the National Plan Advisory Group as well. 
So well done on that achievement. But I mean, tell us about the different things that you've been up to in that advocacy space because there's been a lot happening and a lot yeah. still to happen. That's right. That's right. And look, we're really pleased to be a part of the National Plan Advisory Group. There's some fabulous people on there. And it was great being able to be a part of the Women's Safety Summit a few months ago. I look forward to seeing what comes out of the National Plan and making sure that there's enough in there. There is going to be something in there definitely about perpetrators this time around. I think there's going to be more of an emphasis, and as I think there should be. And I think the federal government does need to support that wholly because states and territories vary so enormously mm. with where they're up to on this issue and what resources they actually put in. So we will continue to advocate for the right level and uplift in resources. And that's, you know, that's Australia-wide. That's not in yeah. any particular state and territory. The big message for us is that we've got to shift the burden and we've got to really focus on where he's at and what he's up to. In order to make an assessment of risk, in order to be able to say, what risk does this person actually pose to his family himself? There are no easy solutions here. There's no quick fixes. Sam, I'm sure you, that's a cliche you've heard a lot about this topic. But saying that, the more we know about this person's modus operandi, the more we know about where he is, what he's doing, what he's thinking. I heard last week just an example, and it was within, and I won't name the police force it was within, where the police had decided to take a much more forensic view of this particular individual. And by the time they got to him, he'd left a sixth partner with whom he has children, and he'd moved on to the seventh. So in the in the few weeks it took them to analyse all the findings. So that's what we would call a serial perpetrator. Now, yeah. not all men are the same. Not yeah. all perpetrators of family violence are the same. And I think we've got to get better at honing in on the real, the real dangerous and the risky, but also recognising that anyone can perpetrate family violence and abuse, particularly if, if you've been brought up to think it might be your right or your entitlement, or just that you're led to believe that you should control the situations in the house. You know, those are all parts of what we've got to try and unpick to make lives better, not just for women and children, but for men as well. No, it's a good point. And I guess we're seeing some developments now, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on the progress we're having with the coercive control. I mean, how are you seeing that play out and, and how are you seeing us getting closer to where we need to be in that respect with the impact it's, of it? Yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, two years ago we weren't even really talking about coercive control. Now it's everywhere. So that's an, it's another example of, I think, how the narrative of this work is, you know, gathering momentum. We conducted a survey, Sam, back in January of, we, I think it was about 500 people at various roundtables that we had, that we held around Australia. And their legislation has been beginning to be laid down in New South Wales, South Australia having an inquiry and Queensland having an inquiry. So we've made submissions to all those state governments about our views on coercive control. And without wanting to simplify it down too much, it's not a new thing. Anybody who works in the intimate partner violence or family violence space has been working with coercive control a long time. It's great that Jess Hill's book shed a light on it, but it's been around a long time. And different states and territories have different legislation. So, for example, in Victoria, we have a big question mark. Do we actually need any more legislation? Because actually we've probably got what we need. It's just that we need to get the police and the courts and the judges to apply it. It's a different challenge from not having the legislation at all. I think it's great we're having these conversations about it. I think it's awesome. But a few caveats. One is that coercive control legislation will not support and help our First Nations or our Aboriginal women. They are more likely to be misidentified as the perpetrator in the first place. And it doesn't take account of the systemic violence, if you like, 
that First Nations women experience at the hands of the justice system. So big, big um, sort of caveat, question mark, word of caution there. Secondly, women who are on migrant visas and women for whom English is not a first language, A, they're more likely to be vulnerable to coercive control because of the visa situation and financial abuse in that matter. But B, they're going to need some special help as well to be able to navigate to be able to navigate the laws, to be able to navigate that visa situation, you could say that people on temporary migrant visas who are experiencing domestic family violence or coercive control should be treated as a special case. And that is part of the advocacy that I believe is going to the federal government now. Now, the other group is women with disabilities, who are probably a lot of whose needs are not fully understood in this space, uh, people who require carers 24 hours. We Again, there's, there's horror stories out there recorded, and I, and I won't name any names, but there's some great examples where women with disabilities have been in violent relationships and not been taken seriously. So we're kind of cautious about how are we going to how are we going to cope with that, particularly uh, women who might have speech difficulties or physical mobility issues, or who may even be disabled as a result of earlier violence anyway. How are we going to support them? And there is one more group, which is the, the GBTIQ communities, and what happens in those communities in terms of an understanding of coercive control. So those are four particular communities that I think need to be given quite special consideration to make sure that any new laws and coercive control don't have unintended consequences. Has the programming and the training, I mean, those minority, I guess, I mean, those, sorry, the vulnerable groups, especially let's look at the First Nations and Indigenous population. I mean, how is there certain training or methodologies that, Note of violence has done to adapt and make sure that a culturally sensitive application of that training is is in place. And I know you've got a number of Indigenous facilitators as well, I think, coming through, which is really great. Tell us a little bit about that and the progress you made. Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think what I didn't mention there was the importance of training the judiciary and the police, of course, on the basis of there are any new laws. Look, I would always suggest that it's, that leadership has to come from within First Nations organisations. But one of the projects that we were really pleased to acquit the other just earlier this year was uh, funded by DSS in Canberra. And it enabled us, with a, led by an Aboriginal woman, to go into five different communities and ask two questions, essentially. One was, how do you talk about family violence in your community? Like, and what do you need to be able to talk about this? And the other one was, and what training and support do you as workers who are working with mine need to, to be supported? Mm-hmm. So they were the kind of two questions the project right. asked. We worked in Queensland, WA, the Territory, and learned a lot from different communities. But you're, but the important thing was that that training, that workshop, and that those conversations were laid by First Nations women and mine and were approached in very much in a, in a way that the uh, First Nations community, Aboriginal community, would uh, would want them to be laid. So it wasn't about us coming in and saying, hey, we've got a model, here it is. Yeah. It was actually about workshopping. How, how do we do this in this community? Because what mm. we do in Cairns might be different to what we do in Alice Springs mm. or in Geraldton in WA. It's a great point, and I'm pleased that, that something you guys are obviously taking very seriously and doing a great job at. If we look at the, I mean, let's look at the the workforce that's come through. I mean, you guys have had record enrolments. I think it was 30, uh, 30 were in the program that was last year, was it, or the start of this year? Yeah, yeah, 60. We've got 60 from the, for this year, yeah. You exceeded previous records. I mean, I mean, tell us about the importance of the development in the workforce that's coming through. Oh, I can't emphasize strongly enough how important it is that 
anyone who's doing any kind of intervention or even prevention work has some idea about the pitfalls of uh, working with a person who's choosing to use violence. And, and that's everything from noticing it to the first conversation through to how do you refer people on to specialist services. So at Not A Violence, we have a graduate certificate in client management and cases, case management and client assessment is, is the title, but it focuses on main and family violence. So that's the graduate certificate we work on with Swinburne TAFE. We've had we've got people queuing up to get onto that course, Sam. It's probably the definitive qualification if you want to be in the men's space. But we also have a four-day foundational course, which can act as a real support for doing the, the graduate certificate. We also have free training, and it's always worth checking our website to check out what free training we've got. We've got something called the Five Essential Discussion Tools. Mm-hmm. And what that is a very short webinar, and it's really about here's some frameworks for thinking about how you might approach that conversation with a client or with your mate or in your family. And that then starts to plug you into what other resources we've got available. That's great. And I, and I just, I mean, I read the stat that you guys delivered training to 1,707 participants of yeah. 318 organization, agencies. I mean, isn't that amazing? Yeah. I think compared to, again, where we were, it's, you know, we're just, we've built very solid foundations to do this work on. And we have under our, Workforce Development Head, Tori Cook. We have a great team team of trainers there. Again, a very mixed, diverse group of trainers able to respond. If someone came to us and said, hey, can you help us think about this? Could you design something? Then the answer is usually yes. Jackie, let's talk quickly about the extensive lockdowns and, and the restrictions that have been upon the Australian communities. I know the world as well, but let's focus on the impact that this is happening, especially as it relates to native violence and what you've seen as a result of these restrictions. Oh, it's what a what a roller coaster the last two years has been, really. And um, we've been as concerned this year about our NSW colleagues as we have about what's been happening in our sort of headquarters state, if you like. We knew that violence was going to go up. We knew that from Wuhan. We knew it from Italy. We knew it from Malaysia. All the places in the world saw family violence going up. But how that came across was interesting. So yes, we have had a steady increase in calls to our helpline. We had some real spikes connected with specific lockdowns, which was interesting, but the women's services went really quiet. And they were really worried about that, and rightly so, because they recognised that it's not that there was less violence going on, there might well have been more going on, but people couldn't use their phones or they weren't safe Mm. uh, to do it. So they had to start providing services in pharmacies and supermarkets and places like that so that women had somewhere safe to go, and they had to do it quite surreptitiously. We are definitely seeing a rise in the nature of the violence, but we're getting more people calling us. So we still think that that's a mark of, if you put the services there, they will come. And if the service is there, there's there's an opportunity for intervention. I actually don't think that this long, the long-term effects of COVID are even known yet. And I think in the mental health space, particularly, we're gonna see a lot of things yet coming out of this. And again, we want to play our fullest part in supporting organizations that are seeking to support men who have violent supporting narratives because there's an awful lot of angry people out there. Now, anger and violence are not the same thing, but certainly violence often comes with that strong emotion behind it. So we think we might have a bigger role to play going forward post-COVID. Yeah, you're right. We're only beginning to see the surface of of the impacts that COVID's had in the mental health sector, that's for sure. And there's a delay as well in in some of the the, the data coming through and, and the impact I'm sure we felt 
know, especially for generations, for the young kids and, and the impacts of them as well. Over 58,000 referrals from police in the last 12 months. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And that's only in New South Wales, Victoria yeah. and Tasmania. Yeah. And, that, and the Victorian figures are only at the weekends. We only get the, the, the weekend, well, weekends and public holidays. So we always know that public holidays, uh, grand finals, Anzac Day, Melbourne Cup, Christmas, yeah. Easter, those are always times when families seem to experience more family violence. We get more calls, either if not during the holiday, then immediately after. Sometimes there's a delay when people, before people actually pick up the phone. But absolutely, the police are really busy. Yeah. And the thing with those referrals, Sam, is that we would love to be calling every single one of those men that gets referred to us. But often we can't actually pick up the phone and make the call because we either don't have the details or he doesn't pick up or he picks up and puts the phone down. Mm. So there's an awful lot of things getting in the way of us being able to really, I mean, it would be great if we could connect with 58,000 people. So we're working on that all the time. I mean, it shows the need for the service though, doesn't it? And it speaks volumes about what you're doing and the fact that they're calling in the first place is yeah. getting referred as well. is really yeah. amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, and anything we can do to assist, we're trying to work at the moment with DHS federally, which is the obviously the agency that runs both Medicare and Centrelink. Uh, we're trying to create stronger links there. I think that's really important. We're also looking at whether we need to have special lines for specific workforces. So I think the thing with NTV, and I think this is what keeps us all going, is that we're constantly looking at ways that we can get to more men, basically, or get to more people using violence and provide them with the signposts and the services, particularly people in rural and remote parts of Australia, where there might not be much or where people might be too easily identified. And we're looking at the telehealth options and we'd be very keen to work with providers of mental health services in, in doing that. As we look forward to, say, the next five years, I know you guys commence the implementation of your 2021-25 strategic yeah. plan. Tell us about what you have planned for the coming sort of five years or so. It'd be great to just get some sort of an idea from Note of Violence and, and where you're headed because I think everyone will want to hear a bit about that as well if you have some time. Fantastic. No, we've got four goals that we've set ourselves as a board and a, and a leadership team. Uh, one of them is about advancing our evidence-based practice. So the point you made earlier about, you know, that these, these programs can work, they certainly can work, but we're kind of looking at the whole gamut of everything from prevention, early intervention, group work, postvention. What happens to a man after he's done a group? Where does he go? How, is, how does it feel? Yeah. What happens next? So advancing that evidence-based practice is critical to us. And we're working with some philanthropics already on that. But we really need to build that research practice base. And for me, I'm not so interested in academic research. I actually want it to be practice-based. I actually want it to be action-based, based on the actual practice and what uh, happens in, in those moments and the key points in someone's life when they have to realise that they've got to do something different. We want to grow our national profile and influence. So thank you for having me on the podcast today. Yeah. That's all part, hopefully, of going to an audience that can think about not violence and how it might fit into to their work. And as you say, sitting on the National Plan Advisory Group, it's a huge opportunity for us to say, what is it Australia needs right yeah. now? Australia, Australasia, Australia and New Zealand. Yes. We've, got, we've got similar issues. This is a global issue. Um, we want men who, who use family violence to access quality services. So we do want that national front door. Uh, at the moment, it's our 1300 766 491 line or web chat through mrs.org.au. But we want, we want to be the national front door for all aspects connected to family violence and build the practice 
to support that. And we also want greater sustainability, Sam. I mean, most of our members across Australia, that we have 200 members, are operating on six and 12 month funding contracts. Yeah. Can't get and keep the best staff yeah. on six and 12 month funding contracts. And that comes back to the point that we made earlier about this being business as usual, core business for all governments. We would really like to see a national partnership agreement coming out of this national plan so that each state and territory government has to measure, monitor and report back on what they've done with their investment in family violence services and what the results have been for their area. So that's a part of our advocacy going forward. But the sustainability is for workers as well. It's for people who are in the practice space because this is quite skilled work. It's quite serious work. And it's not necessarily something you should do for 20 years, sitting talking with people whose narrative is to use violence to get their needs met. So we want to make sure that we can circulate the workforce, that they can have careers, but that they can do different things in those careers. And certainly for us as an organisation, being able to recruit the best staff is part of our sustainability going forward. So strengthening our evidence base, creating that stronger national front door, making sure the specialist practice workforce gets the support they need and is built to be stronger, creating new products for men's family violence in partnership with others, but certainly for the private sector as much as for the public and the government sector, becoming an employer of choice and securing longer term funding. That's our six strategic initiatives. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're going to be busy over the next five years, but I think some very important points there that need addressing as certainly the funding and the the greater certainty for organizations to know that there is because i mean let's face it they're going to need to exist uh, certainly for the next five years so why not um, try and give them some more certainty around their funding and resources absolutely right let's let's go before we before i sort of ask you know how to get in touch with you and the organization tell me where do you how do you feel we're going on the you know on the prevention of domestic violence and where do you think Moving forward, where do you think that we need to be? What do we need to do better? What do you think is going to be coming up? Look, I think we've made a great start. I think having a national organisation like Our Watch is fantastic. I think the revitalised White Ribbon has got a huge contribution to make in this space as well. And I think what the NCAS study shows us, which is the National Community Awareness Survey, is that we still haven't shifted attitudes at that younger people level about what causes violence, what causes sexual violence, whether it's her fault in inverted commas. So I still think we've got a big, big, long way to go. And I think the thing that might shift it, or things that might shift it, is our leaders showing really goodwill and humility. I think anybody, and maybe you can't draw a line in it, but people over a certain age need to go, hey, hang on, this issue is now right in front of us. We didn't have to deal with it, but the younger people need to deal with it. We've got to show leadership. And what that means is saying, okay, maybe I don't realise how privileged I am. Maybe I have been acting out of male entitlement and I didn't realise it. Gosh, what would it be like to not do that? And just getting it up there. Now, sporting leaders, political leaders, our judges, our courts, our police officers, all all the people in public-facing services, The more main we can get talking about this in this way, the better. And I think that's the other side of this is we do need more male voices in this conversation. So I'm very, very cognizant of that. And I would welcome the opportunity for that to happen going forward. Now, that's some good insights there, Jackie, and, and some good points. Tell us, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, how can they get in touch with the 
the organization. I know it might be pretty obvious for you, but if you just make it nice and easy for the listeners, that'd be great. Okay. So if people want to visit our website and see our resources and our training calendar, et cetera, it's ntv.org.au. If people wish to speak to a trained counselor about their use of family violence or to seek advice on someone else's use of family violence, they can ring us on 1300 766 491 seven days a week from anywhere in Australia. If the phone call is too challenging for you or for the people you know, there is a web chat facility through mrs.org.au. That's great. Jackie, it's great to actually, you know, be able to have the time to sit down and have a chat with you about all the things that you've been up to and, and especially the great work Note of Violence is doing, certainly leading the space in this. And it's been great to see you get recognition for that, you know, in the in the different aspects and the advocacy and the, the groups that you're now on, which is great. So well done for that. And we're looking forward to hosting at the conference. And thanks very much for joining me on the on the recording. Cheers, Sam. Thank you so much. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.